always amazes me how God orchestrates things because my first point really deals with rededication of a person's life. And the last point really deals with God responding to people in uh, moments of when they're down and disturbed and discouraged and, uh, and they pray, they call on the Lord and God responds. So take your copy of God's Word tonight and uh, open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 13. Just get there and I'll catch up with you in just, uh, just a few minutes. Uh, back in August of 1985, I was in my first church, had been there about a month, uh, had just graduated uh, Southwestern Seminary, had flown out of DFW Airport, and in that August, about a month later, uh, you may remember Flight 91, an L-1011 Delta TriStar crashed in Windshear at DFW. There were two ladies on the back of that plane. One was Miss Juanita Williams. The other was Miss Grace Edwards. They were from Pompano, Florida. And uh, they were headed out to DFW, out to uh, Dallas and Fort Worth. When they went to purchase their tickets, Juanita said, Oh, Grace, let's sit up front. I want to sit up front, up, up where all the action is. And Grace said, No, 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 I can't do that. Let's sit in the back. That's the better place to sit. And so they made a decision that they would do what Grace wanted to do, and that was to sit in the back of the plane. And the fact of the matter is, the only people who survived that tragedy were those who sat in the back of that plane. That makes you feel real good since we're fixing to get on a plane and fly uh, Sunday night uh, overseas. Well, they were in row 43, and everything back beyond that uh, survived that uh, crash. Everybody else in that uh, horrible tragedy did not make it. Now, the interesting thing is this. They made a decision, and they had to live with the decision that they made, but the interesting thing is that they lived because of the decision that they made. When you come to Genesis chapter 13, you've got two men who are headed toward a destination. Uh, They're moving somewhere. And they're going to make some decisions. Listen to me. Let me tell you something. Your decisions, every one of us makes decisions. And your decisions will determine your destination. You've got one man in chapter 13 who's going to make a decision that he is going to be totally and completely committed to the Lord. You've got another man in that chapter who is totally committed to himself and has a half-hearted commitment to God. One is Abram or Abraham, the other is Lot. And you're going to come to this story that you know so well about Lot and Abraham and how they part ways. But in the midst of all that, I want you to look at the decisions that they make and I want you to think about this. Really what I'm trying to do on Wednesday nights is this. I'm trying to take you through a Bible study where you are learning how to begin to do Bible study yourself. So if you'll watch me as I do this, as I take you through a passage, you'll begin to pick up on several of the things that I do, and you'll begin to study the Bible, and you'll learn some principles about how to do it. So as I come to this, I want you to watch these decisions. That's the major thing in this chapter the decisions that these two men make. 
because it's going to lead them to two different destinations. Well, let me begin with the first thing, and the first thing is this. You've got a man of God, listen, who makes a decision to come back into the walk of faith. You remember Abraham in chapter 12 got out of, got out of God's will. He got out of that walk of faith. In fact, let me just take you back to chapter 12 for a minute. I think it's so important that you see this. You get back to chapter 12 and verse 6, you read this. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moray. And the Canaanite was there in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. So now you begin to establish, I'm going to tell you this now, I told you this last week, you're beginning to establish a pattern. Abram begins to establish a pattern here. You're going to see it in, the, in verse 8. He proceeds from there. He leaves there, and he proceeds from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. So you've got uh, Abraham, he's moving, and as he moves, everywhere he goes, he stops, pitches his tent, he builds an altar, and um, worships the Lord. And the interesting thing in the midst of all that is uh, two things. Number one uh, is that the Canaanite is there. You see that in the verse, that the Canaanite is in the land. These are worshipers of Baal. These are pure pagans. These are people that sacrifice their own children to the gods. In fact, uh, the first full day of touring, if you're going with me to Israel, I'm going to take you and I'm going to show you the, the largest altar still uh, uh, that's ever been found. It's a Canaanite altar that goes back, dates back 5,000 years. Uh, it's in a place called Megiddo. Have you ever heard of Megiddo? Megiddo, the Mount of Megiddo there, the fortress of Megiddo there. It's where Solomon had a chariot city. It's in the valley of Megiddo, which happens to be the valley of Jezreel, which happens to be the valley that is known in the Hebrew tongue as Armageddon or Armageddon. So there is a huge Canaanite. It's as big as this whole area down here, uh, that Canaanite altar. And they would offer their children up in sacrifice. And the, the point is this, is that these Canaanites would see Abram worshiping God. They'd watch him build an altar, and they'd watch him worship God at that altar. The second thing is this. The, the second interesting thing about it to me is this. In verse 7, we're told that the Lord appeared to him. Now, this is just, this is ordinary. Every day, Abram goes out, he builds that altar, he worships the Lord there, Every ordinary day, this man is involved in worship, and every time he's out there involved in worship, what happens? The Lord's appearing. The Lord's showing himself to Abram. God is revealing something about himself to this man. A little more and a little more and a little more. Every time, every step of the way, as he builds an altar and he worships, God reveals a little something else about himself to uh, Abram. That's why you need to be in worship on a regular basis. Well, uh, it's at this point that something happens. Verse 9, 
Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Well, it, we're, we're told that, and right there, we're not told that he builds an altar. We're not told that he worships. We're not told that, the, that he calls on the name of the Lord. He breaks this pattern. The pattern that's been established, and you say, well, how do you know that he didn't do that? Well, when you get down in chapter 13 and it says he comes back into the land, that he comes back to Bethel where he had built the altar, he goes through, if you know the land, he would have to pass first through the Negev before he'd get to Bethel. And he didn't stop in the Negev at an altar because I don't think he built one there. I think he breaks the pattern right here. He gets out of God's will. He stops worshiping. And when he does, fear begins to grip his heart. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. God, he's dependent on God all this way to bring him up out of Ur, all the way over into the land of Canaan where God told him to come. And yet now, for whatever reason, he stops trusting God. He stops trusting God because he's out of worship. He's not worshiping the Lord. He's not, he, he doesn't have that daily walk with the Lord that he once did. So he now depends on himself. And he's going to go, well, the best thing I can do, let me get down to Egypt. They've got something there. So he goes down to Egypt. And when he does that, what he does essentially is he embroils himself, he entangles himself and his wife into a web of deception and lies. Now, you remember the story. He lies about his wife. The Egyptian seer, Sarah is a fine-looking woman. Even at, what is she at this point? 65, 70, somewhere around in there. You're just getting good at that point. <laughs> anyway, they look at her and they say, boy, what a woman. And, you know, the word gets back to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, well, I'd like to have her. And, of course, Abraham has said, let me tell you, you just say that you're my sister. You're not my wife. Don't tell them that, you know, because I'm afraid they're going to kill me. Well, anyway, that's what he throws his family into. I looked at all of that last week. That's, that's where he was. Now, here comes the embarrassing part of it. The embarrassing part of it is that Pharaoh figures this out. Personally, I think God protected Sarah. I think he kept her pure. And I think Pharaoh figured that out, and he calls Abraham into his palace. Now, you just stop and think. Here is Abram standing in front of Pharaoh's court. There is Pharaoh there is Sarah, and he looks at me and says, why did you do this to me? Because every time he'd make a move towards Sarah, God would zap him. And, uh, and, and he's, why would you do this to me? Why would you lie to me? Why would you think that I, now listen, why would you think that I would want another man's wife? Why would you think that I would, I would want to sit? Now, this is a pure pagan. This is a dog-worshiping, crocodile-worshiping pagan. And uh, he looks at Abram, and he's, he's got more integrity than the man of God does. He's got more character going on right now than Abram does. And so he looks at his guards, and he says, you take them, and you get them to the border, and you put them out of the land. So now he goes out of the land. There's the story, as sad as it is, um, as terrible as it is. And so he leaves the land. He's got to be embarrassed. He's got to be ashamed of himself, or at least he should be ashamed of himself. So now you come to chapter 13. He's going to make a decision. Here's the man of God. He's walked out of, uh, of, 
of uh, the will of God, but now he's going to come back. Here's co- here he comes, and here's going to be the rededication of his life. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. God blessed him. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where, he, uh, where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place, you see this, to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly. So he goes back now. He comes back to the altar. He gets back to the place, the last place where he had built an altar and worshiped God. Now, I want to just tell you what's fascinating to me about this whole thing is I believe he's embarrassed. I believe he's ashamed of himself. He knows that he got out of God's will. He, he knows that what he did was not right. It was not an act of faith. And yet, for some reason, somehow, down in Abram's soul, he knows he can come back to God. He knows it. He doesn't have a preacher. He doesn't have a church. He doesn't have a televangelist. He doesn't have devotional books. He doesn't have a single piece of Scripture. He doesn't have a godly father that told him all these things about God. Somehow, down in his soul, God has impressed on him, I am a God who forgives. I'm a God who watches over. I'm a God who loves. I'm a God who who will receive you back. I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God of kindness. I am a God of grace. You can come back. Why? Because I am a God who will deal with you in grace, Abraham. And he knows that. He senses that somehow he's got that down in his heart. Now, here's the interesting thing. Now, we're not in here by the hundreds or the thousands But in the crowd that's in this place, somebody here needs to know that. Somebody needs to know you can come back to God. You got out of God's will. You've sinned. You walked out uh, of uh, obedience and, and into disobedience. And yet down in your heart, you long to come back to the Lord. And here's what you need to do. Get back to the place where you walked out of God's will. He left Bethel. It was the last place that he built an altar and worshiped the Lord. And in that place, he he comes back to that place and there he comes before God. And look at what the text says. It says there, verse four, he called on the name of the Lord. That means he prayed. He got down at that altar and there he prayed. Now here's the question. What in the world did Abram say to God when he prayed? What did he pray? Well, I don't know, but I want to tell you this. Put your finger there in uh, Genesis chapter 13 and look over at Psalm chapter 51 or Psalm 51 to the Psalm of David. When David had been confronted by Nathan the prophet who looked at him and he said, you the man, y'all wanted to know, where did that saying come from? You the man. It came from Nathan the prophet. That's where it came from. You the man, David. You the man. And David breaks because of his sin that he had done. And listen, he writes an incredible psalm 
But listen to verse 1 and verse 2. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, I don't know if he prayed something like that, if he prayed those words or something like that, but I want to tell you, I think what he did there was I think he repented before God. He called out on the name of God, and listen, here's the interesting thing. The Canaanite was still there. They're watching Abraham. They saw him come into the land. They saw him leave the land. I'm sure that there was talk about where he went. I'm sure there's talk when he came back, and they see this man back at the altar there at Bethel, and he's calling out on God. The Canaanites see him, just like your neighbor's, Every single Sunday, watch you go out and get in the car and drive off, and they see you drive back about noon or a little afternoon, and they know that you've been to church. People watch. They see you get in the car on Wednesday nights now. They wonder where you're going now on Wednesday nights. Oh, my word, have you, go, have you, have you become a fanatic? You, you mean you go to church twice in a week? And here you are, listen, the world watches us. Not only was the Canaanite there, but listen, let me tell you something. Sarah is there. She's watching her husband repent of his sin. She knew it was sin. He knew it was sin. She knew he knew. He knew she knew. Listen, and he gets down there in front of her, and not only is she there, Lot is there. Not only is Lot there, but all of those that worked for Abraham and tended to his herds and his flocks, they all could see Abraham at this place in a place of repentance and rededication. The man of faith will come back to the place of walking with God. That decision will determine his destination. Now let me give you the second thing. The second thing is this. A man of faith, he's not only going to come back to God, he's going to make the decision to walk in a godly way. He's going to walk the way God would have him walk now. He's gotten out of God's will. He knows what that's done to him. He doesn't know everything it's going to do to him, but he knows how embarrassed he was, how ashamed he was, how he got out of God's will. It's going to wreak a lot of havoc in Abram's family to come. But he, he determines now, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not only going to come back to God, but I'm going to walk in a godly way. And walking in a godly way, you're going to see this play out in his life. He's going to determine, I'm going to live at peace with my nephew Lot. Because you pick it up in verse 5. Now, Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. Now, don't miss that. Lot who went with Abram. The only reason Lot had anything was because of Abraham. God blessed Abraham, and the blessing just splashed off of Abraham on the lot. He got the residue. He'd be, he, he was able to pick up some of the drops of the blessing of God that splashed off uh, of, uh, of Abraham. Everything he had. He was where he was because of Abraham. He had what he had because of Abraham, And uh, he's got flocks and herds. He's been prospered by God because of Abraham. 
Verse 6, and the land could not sustain them while they were dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. They've got so much. You, you just read in verse 2 that uh, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. Now here's Lot. He's got flocks and herds and tents. In other words, a lot of people working for him. And so <clears throat> the land just can't sustain them. They're, they're all together there. And strife breaks out, verse 7. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. They started fighting for position. They started fighting for place. They started uh, fighting over the land. They were striving with one another. Um, Who was going to get the best? Who could be the best? Uh, Who would have the most? And so while this is going on among them, you, you can't miss this. Because look at what the Holy Spirit just drops in there. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Do you see that? What's that saying? The world is watching you. The world is watching the two men of God, the only two men of God in the whole, in the whole land, in the whole area. And the world is watching them now as they come into this whole issue of of fighting and squabbling and arguing and disagreeing. Do you think the world watches us? Sure they do. Sure they do. You mean to tell you some of the things they know about us? That we owe $6 million worth of debt? I don't like that. They know a lot of things about us. They could tell you a lot of things about Valleydale Church. They could tell you a lot of things about you personally, about me personally. Because the world watches us. They study us. Did you hear this girl? I'm going to take a picture of that and go make fun of these folks. The world makes fun of you. They watch you. They know what to make fun of. I already told you they think you're fanatical for coming to church on Wednesday night. Well, verse 8 So Abram said to Lot, please, no strife. He's determined now, Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says this. He comes and he says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Abram says, I'm going to walk the way God would have me walk. I'm going to be godly in this. I don't want there to be any strife between you and me. I don't want them to see a split between us. I don't want them to know that we're arguing and debating. They need to see us solve this issue. I don't want it to be between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. There's one thing I've always had as a pastor with staff, and it's this, and I tell every staff, any of the churches that I've gone to, you can get the staff and they'll tell you the same thing. I've walked in and I've told them the only, listen, I want to put this down as a marker to begin with. If I find out that you are talking about another staff member in my book, that's immediate dismissal for me. I'm not going to put up with a staff that does that. We're we're not going to set that kind of example for the church. I, I had a chairman of deacons one time. He was the only wild chairman of deacons I ever had. And uh, it was at First Dallas. 
And uh, we were going to take a second vote on the building. We were building a $50 million building. We'd already voted on it, but I was agreeable to uh, a couple to take a second vote. And I said, okay, I'll take it. We'll, we'll go back in. I'll talk to the deacons again. I had 400 deacons at First Dallas, 400 deacons. And they were packed in Coleman Hall. And he had told them, we're going to take a ballot vote. And I walked in and I said, I'm going to tell you something. We'll take as many ballot votes as W.A. Criswell ever took here. Well, they fell in the floor laughing uh, because that would have never happened with W.A. Criswell. It wasn't going to happen with me. And I said, I'm going to tell you one thing right now. I will not let you teach this congregation to be duplicitous. You stand in front of people and you can say what you need to say in a godly, kind way if you disagree, you can be kind about it. But I am not going to let you vote one thing with your mouth publicly and vote something on a piece of paper separately. And we didn't do it. And the building's down there. Go look at it. It's down there. He says we are not going to let our herdsmen be in strife with one another. We're not going to let our staff fight. We're not going to have this duplicity that is here. We're going to do everything that we can do. Now, listen, let me tell you, why is Abram so intense about that? Let me tell you what he's doing. He's going to be gracious to this boy. Do you know why? Because he's just been at an altar. And he's experienced grace. And if you experience the grace of God, shouldn't that make you gracious with everybody else? Well, I'm going to answer for you. Yes. Yes, I have been the recipient of the grace of God, which means what? Which means that it behooves me to turn around and to treat everybody else with grace. And so he comes and he says, there's going to be no strife here, none of this. But watch it what he does. He takes Lot up. They're up, I think, on a plane. You get to Bethel, you're up on a plane and when you're there, you're looking out from that plain. You can see the whole Jordan Valley. It, it seems like you can see the whole thing for, for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And he takes him up there, and he's going to let him choose. He's going to let him pick. Now, I want to tell you, this guy is doing the magnanimous thing right here. He's going to let Lot choose this whole thing. Um, takes him up and he says, is not the whole land before you? Verse nine, please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Takes him up and he says, now listen, this is what I want you to do. Let's take your guy, you choose. I'm gonna let you choose. Now here is where Abram could have looked at him and said, let me tell you something, you little upstart. You wouldn't have anything if it were not for me. Now, you get over there and stand in the corner and keep your mouth shut, and I'll handle this situation. He could have done that. Uh, I've seen that happen in Baptist churches before. <laughs> he could have done that. He could have looked at him, and he could have said, this is going to be my way, and I'm going to send you to the highway. Let, let me tell you, you can take a home, and you can turn it into hell real fast. If you've got a husband that runs around there and demands that everybody grovel at his feet and that he is going to be irritable if everything doesn't go his way. 
or if you've got a woman who runs around there and she demands that she has her way in everything that's done, you can turn a home into hell real fast. You can turn a church into that. Abram could have turned his family and all that he had into hell real fast, but he refuses to do it. Listen to what he says here. He comes to him and he says, you choose. Is not the whole land before you. You choose. And if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. But I'm going to give you the option. I'm going to do the godly thing. And what I see him doing here is this. I give up my rights for you. You know, that's the whole of 1 Corinthians. The whole of 1 Corinthians, Paul is trying to teach them, you don't have to eat meat if it offends your brother. You don't have to. You can get it, but it's my right. Well, sit down there and eat it rare. That's fine. It is your right. But you have the right in Christ to give up your rights. Oh, boy, if we can learn that, we'll do a, we'll do a good job here. Let me, let me tell you, when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to a matter of, 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 of the authority of God's Word, when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to the deity of Christ, uh, let me tell you, all I can do is, with Martin Luther, stand and say, uh, here I stand, I can't do any other. Uh, I can't budge on that. But in a thousand things that come up in the life of a Baptist church every week, we should learn to be like our Savior and to treat one another with kindness. There's Abraham right there. There's Abraham. Don't you want to be a part of a church like that? I do. I don't want to be a part of a church where somebody's constantly mad and bearing down on everybody else, dictating to everything else. Well, Abram comes and he does that. He's determined I'm going to walk in a godly way. Y'all got that point now? I'll go to point number three. Here's number three, verse 10. Watch this. Here's the, here, listen, that's going to make a determination. That decision determines his destination. You, I'm going to show you that in just a moment for, for Abram. But now watch. Here comes the third thing. Here comes Lot. Here's casual commitment. The decision for a casual commitment for the temporal over the eternal, uh, for the immediate over the ultimate. Watch it what the text says. Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. In other words, the Scripture saying it looked like the garden of Eden. Now, in a couple of days, I'm going to take folks, and I'll drive you. It's, the, it's, it's probably, uh, uh, the, the, it is an enormous difference. You'll pull out of an area where there are date palm trees, and there are, uh, there are springs of water, and there are citrus trees. They grow, they grow grapefruit over there like that. Oranges are that big. Sit flowers gorgeous, beautiful, well-watered parts of it. And it's almost like you've taken a pencil and drawn a line and all of a sudden, this over here is sand and dirt and rock and just massive hills. And that's what he chooses. He looks at it and he sees it. He says, it's like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself. Now, notice, notice the word there. Lot chose for himself. Does that say anything to you? 
It just reeks of greed, self-centeredness, selfishness. You know what the boy could have done? He could have looked at him and said, Uncle Abe, listen, why don't we go 50-50 on this deal? Why don't we just split the good and the bad 50-50 through this? He doesn't do it. He takes the whole thing. He's got the opportunity. He's been given the opportunity. What we would say at this point is this. We would say Lot took Abram to the bank. He took him. He took him to school. He taught him a lesson. He looked at it and he chose for himself. He got what was best for Lot. And Lot journeyed eastward. Thus, now here's a sentence. Let me tell you, I I keep telling you, everything is here by the Holy Spirit. He He doesn't put a word in that's not important. He doesn't leave a word out. Thus, they separated from each other. That ought to set off an alarm bell in your mind. Lot needed the spiritual oversight of an older man. And he suffers because he separates himself from Abram. He suffers. Young men, whew, The next time I get to preach at the Southern Baptist Convention, this is one of my young men listen to godly older men. There is still something an older man's got to say. You need to find a godly. Now, listen, that's the operative word there, a godly older man. And and listen to him. Learn from him. This man, this Little Nimrod right here has made this choice and in separating himself from Abraham, he is going to absolutely lose everything that he's got. It's coming. Just watch. Hang on. You'll see it. He comes right here. He chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now, I love the way the King James puts that. I've gotten off my notes. Can y'all tell? I've got to get back to my notes so I don't stay up here for two more hours. Listen, let me, let me tell you something. He, I love the way the King James puts this. He pitched his tents towards Sodom. Ooh. Man, what a word picture. He pitched his tents towards Sodom. He doesn't go the whole way, but he gets mighty close to the place of Sodom. You know what's going to happen? Let me me just show you this. You you don't look to see, when you go up to the North Carolina mountains, do you get, uh, you know that little white line that's right there at the edge of the road? Do you, do you get over there on that thing and try to go off just as close to that falling off going around Cherokee? Do y'all try to, you try to get around there and drive about 70 miles an hour around it and see how close you can get? No, you don't do it in a car. Don't do it in life. I get all the way over here. To, Debbie says, you're going to hit that, you're going to hit the mountain there if you don't get, listen, I'd rather run into the mountain than run off the mountain. You get as far away from it as you can. Let me show you something. Put your finger there, chapter 13. Go to chapter 19, verse 1. Listen. 
Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Well, my word, now he's wrapped up in the entire city. That's a judge. A judge would sit in the gates of the city. Uh, and you say, well, what does that mean? The judge would sit in the gate. Well, they were the, they were the mayor. They were the city council. Uh, they were the judge. They were the jury. They were everything. They ran the city. And a city like Sodom was a large enterprise, and this group of men would sit there, and if you had an issue, you had an issue with your boundary. You had an issue with your employer. You had an issue with, um, with the trades you were doing in business. What you would do is you would go to the gate of the city, and there at the gate of the city, you would stand in line until you could get up to the men who sat there, and they would settle your issue. Whatever your issue was, that's where you went. And so now he's not living towards Sodom. He's living in the midst of it, and he is a major part of the entire enterprise of the city of Sodom. Now, does that get into him? You bet. When the angels come and they tell Lot, listen, you've got to get out of here. He knew they were angels. I, I don't have time to, we're going to come to this. He knew they were angels. He knew they were sin of God. He knew that what they were saying is true. And when they look at him and they say, we have got to get you out of here because we're going to absolutely nuke this place. It, we're, it's going to be fire that will liquidate everything that is here. You've got to get out. And the Bible says in verse 16 of chapter 19, he hesitated. It was so down in his life that he hesitated. When a, now, if an angel shows up at my door and says, you better get out of, of River Chase. All I could think was Cross Creek. River Chase. You better get out of River Chase because at midnight tonight, God's going to turn this place into a fire pit. I'm telling you what. I'm grabbing you. Leave the dogs. We're gone. I'm out of there. They don't have to stand there. They don't have to step. Listen, let me tell you, you would too. You'd be gone. You let an angel show up at your door tonight and tell you that. I'm gone. I'm gone. I'm out of there. He hesitates. So the men seized his hand, the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters. Why? The compassion of God. Look at this. The compassion of the Lord was upon him. I'd have looked at him and said, just sit here and French fry, buddy. Just stay. I've told you. I've done all I'm going to do. They have to grab him by the hand and his family and pull them out of the city. Well, there you go. There he is. There's Lot. That's what's happened to him. You're going to pick back up with him a little later on. The whole problem with Lot was this. He had a secondhand faith. We see, we see Abram building an altar, worshiping calling on the name of God, you never see Lot do it. Never does it. Never does it. Let me give you the last thing. Am I past my time? I don't have a watch or anything. Look at this. Now, here comes the response. Here's the last thing, and that is the response of God to his man. God responds to the man of faith. Um, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram. Now, I can just imagine... Here, here is Lot. He chooses the best part of the land. And I bet you, I bet you Abraham stands up there and watches Lot go off until he's just a little speck on the horizon. 
walking into all that lush green, those date palm trees that go on and on forever. He just watches him just slowly walk away. And I imagine Abraham thought to himself, you know what? <laughs> Why did I do that? Why did I do that? Why did I? And if Sarah was there, I guarantee you, Sarah said, he's just like your brother. I told you don't bring that boy with us. And Abraham, I bet you, now you come back, I bet you he is as low as low could be. He could sit, he could sit on a dime and his feet would dangle off the side. He was low, he was hurt, he thought, what have I done? Why did I do this? And look, the Lord said to Abram. Do you see that? In that low moment, in that difficult moment, in that despairing moment, God comes and speaks to him. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Now, in order to lift up your eyes, what do you got to do? You got to lift up your head. I bet you, I bet you he's standing there like this just thinking, oh, that boy, that boy, that boy. Why, why, why? And God says now, Abraham, lift up your head. Lift up your eyes. Look. Look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see, you think he's got it? This is my land to give, Abraham. It's not yours to give away. This is my land to give. And all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I'll make your descendants like the dust of the earth. He doesn't even have a kid yet. So that if anyone can number the dust of the earth and your descendants can be numbered, he says, that's what I'm going to do for you. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that boy. He's going to go on and on and on. He's going to pass on out of the land. He's headed on somewhere. He's going to Sodom. This land's going to be yours. That's not going to be a problem. Arise, walk about the land. And through its length and its breadth. You remember that old gospel song? I'm going to put on a crown and walk around all over God's glory land. huh? Do y'all know gospel music? <laughs> you ever heard gospel music? I'm going to put on a crown and walk around all over this glory land. That's what he tells him to do. Walk about the land through its length and its breadth. I'm going to give it to you. Now, here is the verse right here. Watch it. Then Abram moved his tent, and he came, and he dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar. Yes! He's back in the pattern. He's back in the pattern of worship. He's back now following that same pattern of walking with God.